Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, December 27th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The U.S. launches airstrikes against Kataib Hezbollah sites in Iraq. Israel allegedly kills an Iranian commander in Syria. The FBI investigates pro-Trump threats to Colorado justices. Project Veritas considers appealing an Ashley Biden diary case ruling. Russia bans an anti-war candidate from its presidential election. An Egyptian journalist who accused Zelensky of corruption is found dead. Paramedics are found guilty for the 2019 death of a Colorado teen. AstraZeneca announces plans to buy China's Graycell Biotechnologies. An import ban on two Apple Watch models takes effect. And Thailand faces severe flooding. In our top story, U.S. airstrikes hit three Kataib Hezbollah sites in Iraq. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CBS, Associated Press, France 24, and Voice of America. The U.S. conducted airstrikes in Iraq early on Tuesday, targeting three sites used by Kataib Hezbollah, a pro-Iran militant group. The U.S. military says the strikes were in response to the group's attack on its herbal airbase one day prior. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said that three U.S. servicemen were wounded, one critically, by Kataib Hezbollah's attack. National Security Council spokesperson Adrian Watson said that the Biden administration ordered the retaliatory strikes. The Iranian-backed group claimed credit for the Christmas Day attack, with President Biden being alerted while at a retreat at Camp David, Maryland. The U.S. strikes occurred at 4.45 a.m. on Tuesday, quote, destroying the targeted facilities and likely killing a number of Kataib Hezbollah militants, according to U.S. Central Command. Baghdad immediately condemned the overnight airstrikes, calling them a, quote, clear hostile act that killed one Iraqi service member and wounded 18 other people, including civilians. Baghdad said in a statement that the attacks run counter to, quote, establishing security and stability between Iraq and the U.S. Since the Israel-Hamas war broke out on October 7th, confrontations between the U.S. and Iran-backed groups in Iraq and Syria have increased. Since the war, the U.S. has counted more than 100 attacks on its bases in Iraq and Syria. As tensions escalate with Iran, the Biden administration has also blamed the country for attacks by Yemen's Houthi militants. While the White House says it will continue to respond to attacks against U.S. bases, it seeks to prevent the Israel-Hamas war from spilling into a larger conflict throughout the Middle East. Thanks, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from National Review. The U.S. has been rightfully responding to attacks on its military bases in Iraq and Syria, and it must continue to project strength in the face of Iranian aggression in order to preserve peace in the region. Iran is sponsoring terrorists in the Middle East, seeking to destroy Israel and America. The Pentagon is sending a clear message that the U.S. will not roll over. Follow that with an establishment critical narrative coming from anti-war. The U.S. military continues to instigate as it conducted airstrikes in Iraq that killed and wounded civilians and breached the nation's sovereignty. Moreover, since Israel's war in Gaza broke out, the U.S. military has heightened tensions and picked a fight against Iran. Continued escalation and possible war are the inevitable outcomes if the Pentagon continues its strategy of aggression. Iran vows revenge on Israel after an IRGC commander is killed in Syria. Here are the facts as agreed upon by WION News, The Times of Israel, Al Jazeera, and Newsweek. Iran has warned that Israel will pay the price for allegedly killing a top Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps 
or IRGC advisor in Syria. Saeed Razi Muzavi, reportedly responsible for coordinating the military alliance between Iran and Syria, as well as other Iran-backed proxies in the region, was killed after an airstrike hit the Saida Zainab district, a suburb of the Syrian capital of Damascus, on Monday. In response, the IRGC stated, the usurper and savage Zionist regime will pay for this crime. Similarly, Iranian President Ibrahim Razi claimed Mozavi was martyred while safeguarding Islamic ideals, adding his death was a sign of the Zionist regime's frustration and weakness in the region. Tel Aviv's alleged role in Mozavi's killing was also condemned by the Iran-backed Hezbollah group operating out of Lebanon which launched rocket and drone attacks on several Israel Defense Forces units, as well as civilian homes in Israel's northern regions on Monday. Hours after Muzavi's death, Israel was also hit with widespread power outages and internet blackouts, prompting speculation of an Iranian cyber attack. However, the Israel Electric Corporation rejected that Tehran had any part in the collapse of its production units. Aside from Muzavi, Iran previously blamed Israel for the deaths of two other IRGC officials in Syria earlier this month. Meanwhile, reports suggested that Muzavi had been a close ally of Qasim Soleimani, the head of the IRGC's Quds Force, who was killed in a U.S. drone strike in Iraq in 2020. Scott, thanks for laying out the facts. The pro-Iran narrative comes from Islamic Republic News Agency. The assassination of Syed Razi Mousavi was not only a violation of international law, but also of Syria's sovereign airspace. Iran will respond to these terrorist actions accordingly. And the pro-Israel narrative from the Times of Israel. While Israel as a general rule doesn't comment on attacks inside Syria, its military has the right to respond swiftly and conduct operations to safeguard and protect the country's interests. The nerd narrative says there's a 27% chance that a state-based conflict between Israel and Iran will cause at least 1,000 deaths before 2025. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. The FBI probes threats to Colorado justices after a Trump ballot decision. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Examiner, Newsweek, Washington Post, NBC, and New York Post. According to several media reports, the FBI is working with local law enforcement to investigate threats of violence against Colorado Supreme Court justices since the court's decision to exclude former U.S. President Donald Trump from the presidential primary election in the state. In addition, the Denver Police Department confirmed it has added extra security around the justices' homes following an increase in online threats. The court ruled 4-3 to three on December 19th that Trump was disqualified from returning to the presidency because he violated Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment. The decision, in effect, holds that Trump participated in an insurrection when his supporters attempted to stop the certification of the 2020 presidential election results on January 6, 2021. It will likely be appealed to the Supreme Court. The increase in online threats was recorded by Advanced Democracy, a nonprofit investigative research organization which warned of a rise in, quote, significant violent rhetoric toward the justices. This comes as Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco recently warned of an unprecedented surge in threatening rhetoric toward public officials across the board. Rolling Stone magazine brings us the anti-Trump narrative. This continues a disturbing pattern after every Trump indictment or unfavorable court ruling for the former president. It all starts with Trump's threatening rhetoric, which has led to multiple gag orders being issued in his criminal cases. This is a bipartisan matter because even some in the GOP have been threatened for not falling in line with what Trump wants. The Wall Street Journal has a pro-Trump narrative. The decision to bar Trump from Colorado's ballot should never have been made in the first place. 
as it's the weaponized legal system, not Trump, that's inciting discontent and anger. Last week's ruling is a clear partisan attempt to rob the voting public of making the ultimate judgment on Trump next year. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They say there's a 91% chance that Trump will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 presidential election. Anything you say could be held against you. You better just keep moving. Good idea. That's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Project Veritas considers an appeal in the Ashley Biden diary case. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, The Messenger, and LawandCrime.com. Lawyers for Project Veritas, a nonprofit conservative group, said Monday they are considering an appeal of a district court judge who last week turned down their First Amendment claim in a case involving the theft of a diary that once belonged to President Joe Biden's daughter. Last Thursday, U.S. District Judge Annalisa Torres in Manhattan said the First Amendment argument was inconsistent with Supreme Court precedent. Her decision means nearly 900 documents pertaining to the theft could be turned over to criminal prosecutors. The documents were obtained in 2021 after the FBI executed a search warrant at the property of James O'Keefe, Project Veritas's founder, and two other staffers. Last August, two people admitted in court they stole the diary and sold it to Project Veritas for $40,000. Project Veritas, which is known for its hidden camera investigations, had claimed the government didn't have a right to access the documents based on the group's freedom of the press. Attorneys for Project Veritas, which has not been charged with a crime, allege that the government is attempting to hinder media investigations of the president and his family, and that a diary written by anyone unrelated to the president wouldn't have garnered the government's attention. Thank you, Scott. The first spin is Narrative A, coming from Intelligencer. Putting potential political motivations for the administration's action aside, it appears this is a clear case of the government attempting to make irrelevant distinctions between who is and isn't a legitimate journalist. Much of the world's best journalism stems from stolen information, and if the government is allowed to violate the First Amendment in this case, a lot of investigative journalism could be unconstitutionally criminalized. And Narrative B comes from the Washington Times. This case has nothing to do with the First Amendment because Project Veritas isn't in the business of journalism. As its recently resigned CEO, who had to take over when O'Keefe stepped down in the face of a criminal investigation, can attest, the organization is a mess that could face further inquiries over criminal activity. It's not worth it for First Amendment groups to back Project Veritas or for the courts to protect the organization. Eric, I'm always surprised at how much weight personal journals carry in criminal cases. It feels like they're basically used as a witness. Oh, this person's journal said this. Therefore, that's what happened. Do you ever notice that? Yeah, I do notice that. And, and by the way, everything you say right now is being documented. Well, I'm, I'm safe because every night I write in a journal and say I did not commit any crimes this today. Perfect. If there's ever a court case, I'll just submit Perfect. that as evidence and I'm fine. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Russia bans an anti-war candidate from its presidential election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Voice of America, BBC News, NPR Online News, Independent, Dagens, and Guardian. Former TV journalist Ekaterina Dunsova, who had last week applied to run in next year's Russian presidential elections to challenge President Vladimir Putin, has been disqualified as a candidate. Russia's Central Election Commission voted unanimously to reject her candidacy on Saturday, citing 100 mistakes in her nomination papers. On Tuesday, Reuters reported that Dunsova, who claims that the decision to ban her is biased, had filed an appeal to the Supreme Court. Donsova has previously stressed her right to stand in elections under federal law, dismissing concerns about the need for permission from the authorities. 
She had called for a peaceful resolution to the Ukraine war and aimed to promote her vision of a more humane Russia. The 40-year-old's attempted candidacy is also suspected by some of being backed by the Kremlin, allegations she denies, while her supporters are concerned about possible prosecution under Russia's strict laws enacted during the Ukraine conflict. She also unsuccessfully approached the liberal founder of the Yabloko Party, Grigory Yavlinsky, about representing his party. Russia's Communist Party, which has come in a distant second to Putin in every election since 2000, has nominated Nikolai Karidinov. Meanwhile, the fellow nominal opposition party, a just Russia for truth, will back Putin. Thanks, Eric. The pro-establishment narrative comes from DW. The immediate slapdown of a Putin critic demonstrates the lengths to which Moscow will go to crack down on people who dare to protest his autocratic regime, attempt to end the war in Ukraine, or free political prisoners. It shows that no dissent will be tolerated in the campaign to give Putin, who, after Dantsova's cancellation, remains the only politician to be able to register as a candidate, a clean slate to win again. RT International has an establishment critical narrative. The American government and media criticizing Russia's political system while simultaneously trying to imprison one of their own top presidential candidates is hypocrisy at its finest. The U.S. establishment didn't like Donald Trump's anti-imperialism foreign policy and therefore sought to ban him from running for election again. The pot is certainly calling the kettle black here. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 20% chance that the next Russian leader will disapprove of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. An Egyptian journalist who accused Zelensky of corruption is found dead. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg News. Monthly Review Online, Pravda, Newsbreak, CF, and MSN. Mohamed Al-Alawi, an Egyptian journalist who accused Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky of corruption, was found dead, showing signs of having been beaten, according to Egyptian police. In August, Al-Alawi published an investigation complete with local records, indicating that a luxury villa in the Egyptian resort of Algona, valued at roughly $4.9 million, was recently acquired by Olga Kiyashko, Zelensky's mother-in-law. Al-Alawi alleged that Western funds intended for military and humanitarian aid for Ukraine had been used to facilitate the purchase. His death was first reported by Egypt's El Mastikbal publication, stating that his body was discovered in the coastal city of Hergada on December 23rd. Police said he was found with multiple abrasions, bruises, and fractures, as well as signs of blows to the head that resulted in a brain hemorrhage. The deceased reporter's brother reported that Al-Alawi began to receive death threats following his publication, adding that he remains worried for the safety of his family. Al-Alawi's report was not the first to allege that Zelensky had engaged in corrupt practices. In April, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist Seymour Hersh, citing U.S. intelligence officials, alleged that Zelensky and other Ukrainian officials had used U.S. taxpayer funds allocated for fuel to purchase discounted diesel from Russia, proceeding to pocket the difference. Meanwhile, Ukraine's embassy in Egypt previously denied Al-Alawi's allegations, claiming there was no credible record that the Zelensky family had even purchased a property in Algona. Scott, thanks for the facts. The pro-establishment narrative is the first spin, and it's coming from Spectator UK. Zelensky understands that if Ukraine is to join NATO or the EU, it has to clamp down on its problem of corruption that existed long before the war in Russia. He is rightly taking steps to eradicate this problem and should be commended for taking Ukraine in the right direction. 
and CF brings us the establishment critical narrative. Despite Zelensky's public pronouncements on corruption, he himself has been at the center of graft allegations to the tune of several hundred million dollars. How can he be taken seriously on corruption if he's also involved? The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 0.1% chance that Ukraine will join the European Union before 2024. You know what? I asked my doctor last week about this, and I think you need to look into it, too. I had to ask him if uh, shutting the f*** up was right for me, and he prescribed me a year. It's really helping me, Scott, so I wow, think maybe we yeah, should both practice good. that. We should shut yeah. the f*** up. I'm going to start really- right now. I'm going to start now. Yeah, that'll be great. You know what? I think I might put a little bit of that in my wife's morning tea. We'll just, we'll just <laughs> see, see what happens. Paramedics have been found guilty in a 2019 death of Elijah McClain. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, New York Times, BBC News, Fox News, and CNN. On Friday, two Colorado paramedics, Jeremy Cooper and Peter Chikuniak, were convicted of criminally negligent homicide for administering a fatal dose of a sedative to Elijah McClain in 2019. McLean, a 23-year-old black man with no criminal record, was stopped by an Aurora police officer while walking home after a 911 call described him as, quote, sketchy. After he was placed in a chokehold, Cooper and Kachuniak injected McLean with ketamine. He lost consciousness and died three days later in a hospital. The prosecution alleged that the paramedics had failed to perform basic medical checks on McLean before giving him the maximum dose of ketamine. However, according to the defense, Cooper and Kachuniak followed their paramedical training after concluding McLean had, quote, excited delirium or extreme agitation. They also claimed the prosecution couldn't prove that the cause of McLean's death was ketamine. Prosecutions for paramedics are rare, as they typically have legal immunity. McLean's family spokesperson said it was too early to say if justice has been served. Kachuniak was separately found guilty on one of two second-degree assault charges, which Cooper was acquitted of. The two could face years at sentencing in the last of three trials against Aurora police and paramedics involved in McLean's death. Thanks, Eric. We have a left narrative spin from NBC News. This verdict sends a strong message to all of those complicit in police brutality. McLean was administered an overdose of ketamine in an encounter that should never have happened in the first place. Instead of rendering aid to the ailing McLean, the paramedic showed callous disregard for the life of an innocent man. This verdict goes to show that no one is above the law. The Toronto Star has a right narrative. What happened to McLean is a tragedy, but it was wrong to punish paramedics for making a split-second decision. This unprecedented verdict could have a chilling effect on first responders all over the country and could give paramedics pause when it comes to rendering aid in their line of duty. We can't afford to sacrifice medical discretion in the hunt for accountability in McLean's death. And a nerd narrative, there's a 1% chance that a large American city will fully abolish its police department before 2035. AstraZeneca to purchase Graysol Biotechnologies for $1.2 billion. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Wall Street Journal, Inves, The Guardian, and The Economic Times. Anglo-Swedish pharmaceutical company AstraZeneca announced Tuesday it's buying Chinese cancer therapy company Graysol Biotechnologies for $2 per share, or $1.2 billion, in a cash deal that will give shareholders a non-tradable contingent value right of $0.30 per ordinary share if certain regulatory requirements are met. The combined $1.2 billion deal includes $1 billion upfront, as well as the cash, cash equivalents, and short-term investments on Graysol's balance sheet. 
which amounted to $234.1 million as of the end of the third quarter. AstraZeneca will now also control the Chinese company CAR-T Cell Therapy, which reprograms a patient's immune T-cells to target disease-causing cells. Besides growing its presence in China, which makes up 13% of the pharma company's total sales, AstraZeneca's oncology R&D vice president, Susan Galbraith, said the deal will boost its existing capabilities and previous investments in cell therapy. The move, which follows news over the summer that AstraZeneca was considering switching its local business listing from the U.S. market to that of Hong Kong or Shanghai, is the second deal it's made with a Chinese company in as many months. In November, the Western company also agreed to develop a weight loss drug with Chinese biotech firm Ecogene. AstraZeneca CEO Pascal Soriat earlier this year said the company had brokered a total of three deals with Chinese companies, including a contract manufacturing deal with CanSino Biologics for its mRNA vaccine program in August. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. The first spin is Narrative A coming from pharmaceutical technology. While the U.S. will certainly remain the world's leading market for pharmaceutical investments in the short term, China has embraced exponential growth in foreign investment for years and is still growing. China, with its growing wealth and aging population, has seen an explosion of age-related illnesses as well as infectious diseases usually seen in poorer countries. Due to this, companies like AstraZeneca and Pfizer will surely look to tap into the government's ambitious healthcare industry expansion project. And Narrative B comes from the Coalition for a Prosperous America. Big pharma companies, particularly those based in the U.S., are using loopholes to charge high prices to the people of their respective countries while also avoiding domestic taxes. This means that as American taxpayers foot the bill for research and development, the company then manufactures its medicine abroad and claims its profits in other countries, thus leaving its home country without any of the tax revenue. These companies need to be heavily taxed if they want to offshore manufacturing while retaining high prices. The Apple Watch Ban Takes Effect Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Post, CNN, NBC, Verge, Fox News, and CNBC. Apple is banned from selling two of the latest models of its Apple Watch after the Biden administration refused to veto an order by the U.S. International Trade Commission, or ITC, that bars imports and sales of the smartwatch. The White House had until Monday to overturn the ITC's ban on the Apple Watch Series 9 and Apple Watch Ultra 2, among other newer models. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai confirmed that the decision became final on Tuesday. The ITC issued its ruling in October over allegations that the product's pulse reader feature infringes on the pulse oximeter technology used by Massimo, a California-based medical monitoring technology company. The technology is used to monitor blood oxygen levels. Apple pulled the devices from its website on December 21st and from its shelves on December 24th. The ban only affects Apple stores. So large retailers such as Target and Best Buy still sell the products in their supplies. Meanwhile, Apple watches that don't feature the pulse oximeter technology are unaffected by the ban, including the Watch SE. Apple appealed the ruling on Tuesday and asked for the ban to be put on hold until the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, or CBP, renders a decision on whether the redesigned watches violate Massimo's patent. The decision is expected on January 12th. Companies usually settle patent infringements, but Apple reportedly believes it can work around the restrictions with a redesigned product. 9 to 5 Mac brings us the pro-establishment narrative. The ITC and the Biden administration are right to not bend the knee to Apple and protect the patent rights of designers. Apple has used its corporate power to rip off the ideas and designs of other companies. 
and it must adhere to rules and regulations just as any other company does. Apple clearly took parts of Massimo's technology, and it cannot keep selling its new watches without righting its wrongs. Bloomberg has an establishment critical narrative that says the ITC is trying to make an example out of Apple by banning its watches without concrete evidence that it violated any patent rights. In addition to unfairly imposing a ban on the products, the ITC has refused to issue an injunction until Customs and Border Patrol issues a ruling on the redesigned watches. Apple must continue to defend its business and integrity, despite regulators unfairly targeting the tech giant. Do you have an Apple Watch, Eric? Does that, I, does that I, appeal to you? Never had one. Do you? I, I don't. The main thing that intrigues me about it is not having to carry around my phone. But I mean, I guess I can carry around, you know, how Princess and the P am I getting if I can't carry around a, uh, you know, three by five rectangle. I need it to be one inch by one inch. You haven't even mentioned the color of the watch. Come on, go ahead. I'm a go rose ahead, gold Scott. guy. Rose of gold. course, of course you are. <laughs> you knew it. You were just trying I to get me to it. say it. <laughs> Our final story, tens of thousands are devastated by flooding in Thailand. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Sun of Malaysia, Hindustan Times, Bangkok Post, and Al Jazeera. Since Friday, the province of Naratiwat in Thailand's south has been inundated with heavy rainfall, resulting in severe flooding that has destroyed infrastructure, closed schools, and forced residents to shelter in their homes. The most significant impacts occurred in the Ruseo district, which received 651 millimeters, or 25.6 inches of rain, the heaviest rainfall recorded in the region in over 10 years. In addition to the residential flooding, the Geoinformatics and Space Technology Development Agency said that more than 14,000 hectares, or about 35,000 acres of land, had been inundated, including agricultural land. The state railway company said that areas along the railway tracks had been submerged, resulting in the suspension of rail services south to the Malaysian border. Maritime transportation has also been impacted in the Gulf of Thailand and the Andaman Sea, where seven vessels have sunk as a result of the heavy rainfall. Thailand's Department of Disaster Prevention and Mitigation's Director General, Chaiwa Junthriapong, said local offices are working to drain floodwaters, assess damage, and tally compensation for the impacted residents. On Tuesday, Thailand's Prime Minister, Sareta Thavisan, toured the damaged area and pledged to support response and recovery efforts, as the Department of Disaster Prevention and Mitigation reported that 20,000 homes have been displaced. Meanwhile, the State Meteorological Department has warned that additional rainfall is in the forecast for Tuesday and Wednesday, with further flooding a possibility. Thank you, Scott. Bangkok Post has Narrative A. As the planet warms, the climate risk to Thailand grows, as evidenced by the country's jump to ninth place in the ranking of countries impacted by extreme weather, up from 43rd place in 2011. No region has been spared the severe impacts, but Bangkok is the most vulnerable. Without significant investment in infrastructure by the government, Bangkok stands to lose its shoreline, which will reduce tourism and the country's economy. And Narrative B comes from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Despite what the critics say, the Thai government has improved its response to climate change. A recent surge in urgency has resulted in many policies that pledge to meet the most ambitious climate goals to date. Policy changes are expected to drive the economy in sustainable ways and will reduce the country's dependence on fossil fuels, growing the nation's job outlook and reducing its environmental footprint. 
Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, December 27th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Thank you.